Hey, Michelle. Welcome hey, to 407 Layaway. Layaway. We're Michelle, here. Michelle, although some people do, I've never craved action or seen a deficit of action as a problem in any Fargo episode. And some people are making criticisms about these last two episodes for that reason. Really? Like, not enough action. It's all placeholders, all setting up the final three or four. Not enough shoot 'em up, not enough action. Well, there's no accounting for tastes, I guess. This is this is something that you and I actually really agree on, and we don't agree on everything. And you and I agree on that. There has to be a place for the story. And to me, I mean, entertain my mind. Don't just try to entertain my eyeballs with, you know, just the the flashy stuff. I like the thinking stuff. So, Michelle, we've got two dead doctors now. We've got a tornado on the loose. We've got singing lovers. And we got a couple mysteries, too. Like, who is this happy guy? Happy. That that Loy seems to be afraid of or, or kind of in awe of, I should say. Yeah, I think it's somebody that he respects or somebody that is on a even kill with him that he can't just do anything i think it kind of goes back to what uh ibal was saying there's people that you can kill and there's people that you can't kill so i thought that was kind of an interesting little play in this because i think when loy got so upset at leon and uh they kind of called him back you know this is happy's cousin and we need happy. There's things you can do and there's things you can't do. So there's rules even inside the the lawlessness, basically. Well, happy is some big shot that Loy does not want to look want does not want to bring disfavor upon himself from this guy happy, whoever he is. Sure. And you know those criminals, they always name themselves like the opposite of what they really are. So happy's probably some grumpy bastard and in New York or <laughs> Kansas City that should not be crossed. That's funny. All right, Michelle, what other important takes did you get from this one? Well, the main thing I noticed in this one, I made a note that the old Fargo is back. The cinematography in this one really kind of blew me away. I was astounded again, and it reminded me of everything that I have loved about watching Fargo. Perfect scenes, perfect colors, everything about the way the scenes were shot. And if it was this good in the rest of the episodes this season, I have somehow missed it. And they, they've shown it from time to time, like Orietta's jerky walk, which is really interesting to watch and stuff like that. But in this one, there was one scene in particular, there's a, a million of them, but like they would start off at the the, the whole screen would be filled up with the front of the car right before we get into Josto after he leaves Loy and tells him that he's, his son's dead. And it's just this great scene. It's just perfect. And the whole, the whole screen is filled up with the front of this old car. And it goes on for like a couple seconds. Another one of the scenes was um, when Weff was walking uh, back and forth, packing up and the light is streaming through the window and they're showing like like they're fading out on what what 
Weft's doing in one spot and then zeroing in on what he's doing in another spot. So there's different Wefts in the same scene and the light streaming through the window just perfectly and makes it hazy and everything. It was just really cool. I couldn't help but notice all the different uh, ways things were shot in this Yeah, they do that sometimes in cinema where there's like a residual ghost of the person and then they show their next move and their next move. Exactly, exactly. All right, Michelle, what happened in 407? Well, we start off with Orietta Mayflower, and she's cooking up some delectable macaroon delights for Dr. Howard. And it was really cool. Even this was cool. She's standing there, and she's doing that thing that you kind of maybe picture your grandma doing or whatever. She has the flour in her hand, and she's kind of like dusting these things with this flour. And she has her other hand on her hip. And it really reminded me of, like, my grandmother doing that kind of thing. And it was just... I don't know, even that, just just this beginning took me back. Great music. Um, We see the standard disclaimer, her jerky walk as she's headed down the hospital hallway and then the cutout Fargo logo. So we know she's up to no good. So some people are criticizing macaroons and macaroon. Uh, there are apparently two different desserts. One is a macaroon, and as well, there's a macaron. And the macaron is the Italian <laughs> version. Uh, okay. Even though Orietta, she calls it a macaroon, I think these are the latter because they're from Italy. Interestingly enough, the Italian dessert is the one that gets to the doctor. Oh, I thought she said that was the Irish. What? What do you mean the Irish? She said that she thought they were Italian. No, no, they're Italian and not French, as she thought. That's what she said yeah. about Okay, yeah. So, so Michelle, how could you feed somebody a macaron with enough adhesive in it to seal their throat shut and they think it tastes fabulous like this idiot doctor did? I don't know unless she's magic, right? There's something in her that's magic. Um how could you put that much ipecac in a apple pie and it be edible? Well, ipecac, I mean, an apple pie is gooey. You have a bunch of apple syrup or whatever, whatever else you put in there. Not apple syrup, but you know what I mean. In a big, big gooey pie, you could probably put enough ipecac in there to get to somebody's guts. But a little cookie that's just like a you know, flaky, powdery, sweet thing that has essentially glue in it. I tried to look that up, and it's just some kind of adhesive. I don't even understand what that is. Did you? I was looking for poison, but is that Jack scratching again? Yes, it is. You tell him. You tell that damn dog. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's. I looked for poison, too, but it, all it is was glue. I think it just glued his throat shut. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know that, how you can have enough in there to make it work and still taste as good as because he he didn't look like he was just making her happy. He looked like he really liked it. Yeah, because she's evil, right? She's evil, and she's like put puts her magic evilness. Good well, why didn't she just go and wiggle her fingers and make his heart stop? She oh, well. she physically killed him with this with this adhesive. Yeah, I don't know, but I'm I'm with you. That's an awful small amount. 
I got that. some other complaints in this. I'll I'll bring them up as we go. But I, overall, I mean, these little complaints are just like we're doing a podcast, so you got to talk about something. So some little things bothered me though. That was one. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really think about that. I couldn't even really figure out how she got adhesive even into a cookie to begin with and turned it into a cookie because macaroons are delicate. They're delicate cookies to make. And, or I'm, I refuse to try to say it like you did. First of all, macaroons to me are the coconut cookie. The coconut, you know, like little mound of cookie, that's a macaroon. And only recently, well, not recently, but I grew up with the other kind of macaroons and then I've seen these macaroons, you know, later in life and um but but they're very delicate cookies to make and it's like these two little cookies with the filling in the middle and um a lot of work and she didn't just make them she made three different flavors well four she even said yeah did you did she do the here pick a card any card trick with the one card sticking up a little bit hoping that 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 he picks that card or was the whole batch of cookies poisoned like somehow she knew he was going to pick the vanilla. She put the vanilla in the middle. That's a good question. I don't know. I think she had to poison the whole, all three flavors. Yeah. Yeah, and she also said she made uh, pistachio flavor, but the color was off-putting. So she didn't bring them. But she, that's a lot of work. And then she brings this in. I mean, that is a lot of work. And she brings it in this little tin. And then... Her conversations, I'm fascinated with every conversation I hear her have. He tries to beg off because he's just had a lunch and he told her it wasn't necessary and for her to bring him sweets and all that. And then she completely plays to his ego that their cookies are meant for the refined palate. And it would be such an honor if you would eat one of these cookies. And if it's not the best macaroon you've ever eaten, I'll hang up my apron just I mean, she's, the character's perfect. But he devours the cookie, barely gets it swallowed before it starts to kill him. And she's standing by watching him with this eerily peaceful look on her face as he gasps for breath. And then she goes to get the letter out of the drawer, shushing him at one point for gasping too loudly. And she takes the letter, and we see this eerie light as if he's looking at her and there are these red lights coming in through the windows, like something really evil. And then as he's still, like, dying, gasping, she dusts the macaroon dust off of his face. And then she stands at the door and she contemplates on how to seem distressed. And then she finally screams and the secretary comes in and Orietta says she's going for the doctor, for a doctor. Great scene, though. Yep, she did what she does best. Yep. And then we go to Josto and Calamita, and they're at Camp Elegance looking at Antoon's body and discussing that Rabbi and Satchel have to die. And Josto says he wants Calamita to go do it alone and to leave Antoon there for the birds. Did you yeah, not very uh, awe-inspiring among the rest of his crew. Like, that that's what happens to us, boss? You just want to leave us behind for the birds to peck our skin apart? Yeah, well, he was he was uh, very disappointed, I think, in the fact that uh, and Antoon got himself killed in place of carrying out his wishes with Satchel. So that was kind of his punishment, wasn't it? 
I guess, but I mean, it, I don't know. A leader, I guess, has to be both feared and loved. I guess that makes him maybe a little bit feared, but probably to me, it seems like he makes him more hated than anything. What a, just seems, what a bastard. Right, and lazy, right? It just seems lazy. It's no, like it was, I'd a, just... it was a, like you're saying, it was like a, screw it, he's a piece of garbage, leave him for the birds to peck apart. True. I don't even want to give him, I don't want to put any effort into even like, you know, keeping his body sacred or whatever. And that's a big deal. That seems to be like a big deal, particularly back then. I mean, they talked about giving people proper funerals and stuff like that. And, yeah. So then we go to Leon. He's advising Loy to kill Gatano. And Loy is letting him know that he's not thought things out. And then he attacks him when Leon talks about Dr. Senator. And he punches him first. And then he starts hitting him with a belt. It's like he's... It's like he's... I don't know, chastising, humiliating him? Is that how you would look at that? Well, he's grieving, too, still from Dr. Senator's death, and he doesn't want anyone to even speak his name. And he kind of hates this guy. I think this happy thing is a bigger deal than we're pinning anything on yet. He sort of hates that he's stuck with Leon because of happy. Leon comes bu- bubbling into his life, you know, hey, I'm, a, I'm more than muscle, I'm smart, I want to be part of the organization. And, you know, Loy has to let him into the organization at a higher level than what he probably earned. He lets him drive around Lemuel and all, you know, he gives him an important role and he kind of fucks it up. And now he's giving advice about, you know, let's, let's attack, let's attack. And Loy's mad at him. And he's yeah. he's got he's like my uncle. The only reason you're here is because your freaking uncle or whatever happy is to him, and he's not happy about that. <laughs> Pardon the pun. Loy is Loy is being kind of muscled by this happy situation. I think different people are trying to muscle Loy. I think you're you're right, and I think he's pretty smart, or at least he's smart enough to try to figure it out. I guess we don't know how smart he is yet. But there was just something about pulling out a belt on him. It was like what you would do to an errant child back in the day. And it well, just he is seemed, an errant child. He's but, it, the, but he's a grown man. Yeah, and, but he's like Lemuel's vintage. He's so like, you don't think it would be more humiliating to get punched or get like struck with a belt? Oh, maybe he was trying to humiliate. He's angry. It doesn't really matter if he punched to me. It doesn't matter if he punches or belts him or hits him with the butt of his gun or pulls out his knife. He's he's mad, and he's stuck with this guy. He's stuck with Leon, and he's mad about it. You you may be right. I just know that one of my favorite book series is... um the Outlander series by Diana Galbadoon. And in this series, um, there is a, it's written in old time, uh, old time Scottish area. And the guy in this, he, he takes like a punishment for one of the girls as if to like save her from being publicly humiliated for something she had done. And he can either be struck with a, a belt or something, a strap or something like that, or he can be punched. 
And the guy, of course, takes the punch because there's something about being struck with a belt or a strap that's humiliating for a guy in, in, in this. And so anyway, I guess it just brought that up. When Michelle, are you he, trying to pimp some Outlander podcast you're on or something? I'm not. I'm not. I haven't read it in so long, but that was one of the things that, because I mean, I, you know, you think who would have thought, but no, no. But they pull Loy off and remind him this is Happy's cousin, like you said, and they need Happy to win this battle that's coming up. So then we see Gatano, and he's all bloody and beaten and sitting chained in a room where the phone rings, and Loy answers the phone and says to meet at his place at 3, and mister, it's going to cost you. Yeah, that's probably eBay violence, right? Yep. Setting up the meeting. Yep. And in this all, within this episode, Michelle, many times, and this is one of those times, there were piccolo piccolo interludes of music between some of these scenes and during these scenes. And it's yeah. very reminiscent of, like, The Godfather. The piccolo, curious, like, curious little um, lilting, what's the right word? Uh, fl- flirty little piccolo sounds, like fanciful little sounds on the piccolo or whatever the air instrument is, but not ominous, not like kettle drums or or big bassy sounds, but just little teasy little piccolo strings or pic- I mean, piccolo sounds. I didn't notice. Very, that's, that's very much like The Godfather. Yeah. Yeah, that, they really play with music in this, and I... A lot of the music that that they do use seems to be period music, and so, and 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 it always seems to be out of sync with what seems to be going on, or like, or not always, but a lot of times seems to be out of sync with what's going on in the severity or seriousness or sadness or whatever of the of the moment. So then we see Weff, and he's pulling up in this tunnel space, and he's sitting there with his anxiety twitches and one little, two little song. When Daffy comes up and gets in his car, Daffy pulls up on him all the time and startles him. And he's saying that Loy's place is a fortress. They're sitting there looking at it, and he thinks that Zelmar and Swanee were there a few days ago, were taken there a few days ago. And then he goes into the fact that some of the cops are owned. And then he says that, a little birdie said that Weff also filled his dirty pockets too and walked a crooked line. And Daffy tells him to be careful how many sides he plays because even a gold coin only has two faces. Yeah, and the little bird that Daffy's talking about is just it's just him sneaking around watching Weff. He oh, doesn't yeah. have anybody spilling anything to him. He's just watching Weff, and Weff's actions are betraying what he's really doing right michelle i like the crimes that he accused the different gangs of being involved in did you uh did you look up any of the definitions of what like we all kind of he mentions three in particular loan shark the numbers game and racketeering and do you know i mean we all kind of know what a loan shark is right right give a loan out super high rates you can't pay it back usually but it's like really abusive loan loaning money right but the numbers game michelle do you know what that is i do not it's a little lotto game that you would 
you would pick numbers. So this is like a low-level crime. So poor criminals would run numbers. And what it was was a racetrack at the end of the day would have a handle about how much money was bet. They call mm-hmm. it the handle. They might have handled, you know, $212,000. So, tw- you know, 212,752. So 752 would be the three numbers, would be the numbers of the day. So you'd have to guess the three numbers to win the little lotto, the little criminal lotto. So every day it was published in the paper, you know, the the um, racetrack handle. So it was very easy for everybody to see what the numbers were. And it was kind of a, you know, it's kind of a built-in, um, what do they call that thing that spins all the balls and shoots them up and you watch the lotto and it picks out, they pick out numbers? Yeah, bingo thing yeah whatever that thing is was automatically done by the papers when they published the the handle of the racetrack so everybody had could see it was you know not made up by somebody it was just published but that that's what the numbers game is and people would take bets you know i bet i bet a quarter on 752 and they would get paid if they won and they would lose it if they lost so that's like pure chance then correct uh, no, Michelle's very scientific. Yeah, of <laughs> course. Saying. You have no idea what the three, you know, how could you ever figure out what the three digits of the handle of a racetrack that handles thousands of dollars right. w- could be. And then the racketeering, do you, do you, you've heard that before, but have you ever really looked it up to see what it is? Um. No, I mean, I have a basic idea, but no, no, not really. Why? So racketeering is... Two, two things. First definition is just like it's an organization of crime on an ongoing basis, like a racket. Like numbers is the numbers racket or the protection racket or the, I don't know what, money laundering racket. It's like organized crime on an, it's like we've made a business out of this crime. It's our racket. Right. But another way to use racketeering, and I think one thing that criminals do more maliciously, is service for a non-existing problem. Like, that's a nice restaurant you have there, Michelle. Be a shame if anything happened to it. So, right. So you got to that's the protection racket. So you got to pay right. somebody for like an implied threat that if you don't pay them, you know, they're kind of saying, hey, we'll protect you. But if you don't protect want that you protection, from us. By yeah. paying us, yeah. Yeah. So he, so Duffy mentions the things that the gangs are in and that essentially accusing Weff of, too, because he's with those, you know, he's under their thumb. Loan sharking numbers and racketeering. It was kind of interesting to me that he does this, that Weff does this for money. For some reason, or that's what Duffy insinuated, for some reason I thought Weff got into it on more of a forced into it kind of thing. And I don't really know why I thought that, but that's just what I had in why mind. Why would you that, think that? I don't know. You probably got think... into it for money, and then, you know, like any criminal organization, you say, okay, that's enough money. I've made, en- I've made enough for my second year of college. I'm out. <laughs> you know, they always say, oh, no, you're not. You're in now. You're in for whatever we want you to do. Yeah, I don't know why I had with pictured differently that he got in some situation that 
he was just kind of forced into that life poor, of crime. Poor old Wefs had a rough life with these world wars, Michelle. In world War One, he had his face blown off, Jack Houston, and now he's all twitchy and jumpy from landmines in World War Two. He makes me nervous watching him in this. He's, he's so, a great actor. He is. He's very good. But he kicks he kicks Deffy out of his car, and then he starts smacking himself in the face pretty good. He's so stressed out. He actually pulled a Deffy on Deffy. He's, one, yeah. one question was like, Deffy asked him something, and he said, what did you say to me? Like, like he was acting deaf to... He didn't want to hear it. Like, how, what did you just ask me? Right, right. When you ask that, but you're not really asking that, you're saying, how dare you ask me that? That's what he said. Okay, then we go to Loy's wife, and she's teaching all the kids English, including Zero, in her beautiful home with the festive Christmas tree in the background when Calamita comes to the door, asking her how many kids are in the house and why is there no guard out front. So here's another nitpick, Michelle. Why are there no guards? Um, isn't it because they're all like down there dealing with Gatano? You can't leave one dude behind with a gun to help the woman homeschooling the kids? Yeah, I mean I agree. I don't know. And also what was what was the plan you know, what was Constant Calamity's plan? comes strolling up, knocks on the door, and gets a sawed-off shotgun in his face. Well, he was supposed to take Zero. I know, but he doesn't know there's not seven guys in the kitchen having breakfast. You know, he strolls up, like, unprotected. I don't know, it was a little... It was a little... It seemed a little... out of character for a smart gangster like Constant Calamity. Well, no, he actually wasn't there to take Zero. He was there to find out if Satchel was back home and if Rabbi had brought him home. And I still don't know if he knows that. Uh, well, don't lose my point, though. It, it, Josto told him to go through that house and kill everybody. You have to. Right. He doesn't just go up there to find info. He goes up there to wreak havoc. Then why doesn't he? Well, he, got, he wasn't on guard he got a shotgun put in his face that was my question why didn't you come up with his gun out you know yeah I don't know I don't know I don't know what he was feeling out it doesn't make sense no and the way he is too he's not the most he doesn't seem to be the most thought out person he's in constant calamity Michelle he is Lloyd's wife asks if he knows that the mama lion in the zoo is in the cage for, or if he thinks the mama lion in the zoo is in the cage for her own protection, and then pulls out that shotgun and tells him to get out of there. And I was surprised when he left. I, I mean, I don't really know what I thought he would have d- done in that situation, but he could have probably overpowered her if he'd wanted to. Yeah, more kindness from the cannons. Like even in this, even in this time of turmoil with the. Italian, she's teaching, she's actively teaching Zero and now even kind of protecting him. Yeah. The enemy, the enemy yeah. son. Treating, treating him well, they always have. Then we see the cannons and they're moving into the Smutney home slash funeral parlor. That was quick. 
And Ethelreda comes down and seems very nervous that the men are going in the room with the coffin. Okay, what was going on here? Well, the snowman was peeking out of the coffin. But it was like Ethelreda knew. Because she seemed really anxious. I mean, she seemed anxious around them, period. And when one of them spoke to her, she turned and said she has to go. But she was really nervous that they were in that room with the coffin. Well, there's a couple things, I think, going on. I think she's flirty with Lemuel, for one. And she's a little teenage girl kind of flirting around with, you know, probably a guy she thought was pretty attractive. That's one thing. They're they're turning their mortuary into a a freaking criminal warehouse that can't feel good i was no, trying to figure not. out if those if that was cases of booze or cases of cigarettes or something but it wasn't something that belonged in a mortuary no it said like american something i tried to figure it out too but I well i don't think it was out. snow cones i think it was like cigarettes or booze so well, yeah and they're just putting them down everywhere i mean that's not gonna so, work so that made her jump well they're gonna i'm sure they're gonna move it somewhere you know pack it away but, but, but then the snowman, she she may be nervous about this ghosty snowman who we know zi- we know zero about this thing, him him it whatever. Don't even know if he's friendly or mean or evil or what. But or if he's there to protect the family because remember the story that we heard from Zelmar to Debrell about it that this is like something that's been in their family for generations or at least from way back. So maybe it's somebody that just protects their family and she's, I don't know, that's kind of what came to mind and that she's uh, anxious about these men going in there where they're not like supposed to be. I didn't see her flirting with him at all. I mean, I saw her kind of look down demurely when he spoke to her, so maybe... I am calling that a budding romance. I think there's going to be a connection between the Smutneys and the Cannons because of this Lemuel Ethelreda. Okay. Well, I mean, it could definitely happen. I mean, back in the 50s, she's what? She's 17? Girls got married when they were 17. So, she's I not I don't really... need you to tell me it could happen, Michelle. I see it happening. <laughs> So the guy puts the boxes down. Lemuel puts the box down. He turns away from the coffin, and the coffin opens, and we see the ice man looking out at him. The snowman. Why are you calling it snowman? By the way, Michelle, when I write snowman, it's S-N-O-M-A-N, because that's the friendly. I, I think he's friendly. I think he's friendly to the... What's Smutneys. Smutneys. Yeah. I think he's going to be protective of them. I think he might be to them, but I don't think he would be to anybody else. But then Lemuel goes up to the coffin and he knocks on it. I mean, even he's getting like this feeling about it. Anybody home? And then someone comes in, tells him to get bid, get busy. So I made a note to ask get you. Get busy. If you think, if you thought Ethel Rita knew the Iceman was. I in. think I think Lemuel's that false bravado like hey I'll whistle past the graveyard I'm gonna go and freaking knock on this coffin hey anybody in there he's a he's a he's a punky young dude he's trying to be bravado trying to show bravado yeah but don't we all do that in situations like that like something that scares you but you feel like you shouldn't be afraid of and so you just prove to yourself you're not gonna be afraid of it well, Michelle, you can walk around mortuaries knocking on coffins. I don't really care to. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. 
Okay, so then Calamity goes in Rabbi and Satchel's room, and he's remembering them playing their Marco Polo game. And he goes to the Bible. Now, this was an interesting thing to me. He removes his hat and makes sign of the cross before he even opens the Bible. So, even though he's looking for these people to murder them, he still has a type of respect. And it just, it's it's so contrasting to me. But anyway, inside he finds an advertisement and a coupon to Uncle Jack's Feed and Seed. And I guess that's what he, something he was looking for. And I made a note here about the light in this room. The cars are passing outside and it's kind of dusky and the way the light is moving through the room. It's really eerie and it was really good. So now, do you think he's going to show up at Uncle Jack's Feed and Seed and find um, Satchel and Rabbi sitting there on a sack of seed hiding out? I think he may show up there, and I think uh, Rabbi's going to be ready for him if he does. I, I mean, think what a Rabbi- dumb, what a dumb thing for them to leave. This is another nitpick, but what another dumb thing to have happen? Why leave such a? Unless they forgot it was in there. I think they left it there on purpose. Okay. To set him up. They knew that somebody was going to thumb through the Bible looking for clues? Sure. That's all that's left in the room. It's not like there's anything there. And you you have this well-worn Bible. Sure. All right. Well, that's a good take if that's true. That's uh, interesting. So they're setting a trap for him. That's, that was the impression, you know, because at first I thought, oh, no, poor rabbi, poor Satchel. And then I thought, wait a minute. That was a little bit too easy. It was the only thing in the Bible, and maybe it was something left there as a clue because rabbis never trusted that he's safe. And so maybe he had that plan the whole time. If I have to leave, I'll leave this there, and then if anybody comes, I'll know where, I'll know how to ambush them. So. Yeah, that's good. Okay, then we go to Josto, and he's riding in the back of the car in the split screen, and he's thinking back on Gatano who we see in the middle of the bottom screen, and he's all bloody. And in every situation, Josto's dominating him. We see that a lot, I think, in this. This domination we see uh, uh, Ethel Rita, like, you know, dropping her gaze. And we see, uh, oh, who else? We just talked about it. Loy hitting Leon with a belt. And then, I don't know. Then we see... Flashback on Josto telling Gitano to get out of his chair and shooting toward him and just all of these very dominating kind of acts. And then Josto goes to meet up with Loy and he and Ibal, he and Ibal are there and Deffy's watching it all from the car. Man, Deffy is there. He is everywhere. And Josto tells the guys that if they if they aren't back in thirty minutes to come in shooting. Yeah, well, so. he wanted to bring the whole crew in. All right, boys, let's go. Time for the meeting. And then Lois says, "No, just you two. Right. So he gives them kind of a, "If I'm not out of here in a certain time, come in and get me." So, how much do you love a ball? First of all, Michelle, it's eBay. eBay, eBay violence. Okay. I come up with these jokes. You think they just come out of thin air? No, Michelle? they're great, but my autocorrect doesn't correct the same thing your autocorrect corrects too. So I'll have to put that in. 
Uh, I think he's brilliant. You know, he's the if you put pieces of chess men on a board, he's you know what's they're not quite the king and queen, but doctor senator and eBay violence where you know if not bishops or rooks, they're one one notch below the best pieces on the board. Yeah, they're really better, right? They're better than that because they're smarter. They might not be better than Loy, but. Yeah, I don't older. know. I mean, I think he's great. I think he appealed to Loy. I think he's who kept himself and Josto alive. But he's appealing to Loy that he knows things have gotten out of hand and he apologizes about Dr. Senator. And he says he was, a, and again, Loy won't even let him say his name. And he explains that he was a friend of his. And then he goes into look. You cannot kill Gatano. There are people you can kill and people you can't kill. And because Gatano is Donatello's son, New York will not have him killed. You He's can't a made man. Yes. Uh, and in the meanwhile, Josto is mocking him in the background. Yeah, well, Cain was Abel's brother. You know, I'm waiting on him to do like the little da da da, you know, kind of Cain, you know, he's crazy acting. Ibal says they plan to offer them the slaughterhouse and some territories and Loy says maybe he's killed him already and maybe I'll kill you too and then Josto literally laughs in his face. He laughs in his face and then he says oh I thought of something funny. Yeah he offers them the slaughterhouse and trucking routes to Cleveland and somewhere else. Fargo. Somewhere. (laughs) Can't remember where but Trucking routes and slaughterhouse. Well, Ibal promises him that Gitano will return to Italy if they just let him go. He says that they have his word, Ibal's word, eBay violence word. So Josto tells him that one of his guys did something that was a sin, a horror, and he stands there and he says, he killed your son. He knew that we were going to make a trade for Gitano and he lost his mind and Satchel's dead. And Josto says that they respect them and they grieve with them and the cannon's guns are pulled at this point. And Josto says that he knows that it's a life for life, but he's begging him to kill Gatano instead. Meanwhile, Ibal is looking at him like, have you lost your mind? Yeah, this is, um, it's actually fairly smart by Josto, although he can't pull it off. He could have probably pulled it off had he been not so goofy with it. But he wants to, you know, he acts like, oh, please don't kill Zero. He, my wife would be devastated. and He could have acted it out a little better than he did. But he put the emphasis on Gaetano. Take Gaetano instead of Zero. That you know, he wants somebody to kill Gaetano. He doesn't care who, but this is the perfect you know guy to kill him. And then he blames it all on constant calamity, so he gets killed too. So he's trying to get those two of his own team taken out by this little plot, so that he doesn't have to do it himself, or he doesn't have to worry about them taking over when New York storms in or whatever. But he doesn't do it very well. It's a good idea, but it's executed poorly. I guess I don't picture Loy falling for that, even no matter how it was executed. 
maybe he was trying to play on Lloyd's grief or whatever, but I can't imagine Lloyd would fall for that. Um, but I, I agree. I agree. Definitely overplayed his hand with it. Did it's when like, we talked about Weff and Daffy earlier, did they they talk about that blood atonement in their earlier conversation in this episode? Yeah, I think so. So that was really important. We didn't talk we didn't even mention it, but that's important here because it comes up a couple more times. And Josto says it right here. He says, we know the rules, a life for a life. That's a, that's a blood atonement. That's what blood atonement is. That you literally, if you kill somebody in the Mormon belief, your blood has to literally be spilt on the ground. Blood atonement. You have to pay for it with your life. And so Josto now says this. We know the rules, a life for a life. So he's like, you're kind of obligated. Now you got to take me up on this. You got to take out somebody. Please don't take zero. Take Gaetano. It's interesting that a deaf he brings it up and then it's being repeated here by Josto. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't piece those two together. But yeah, he definitely talked about that earlier in the car. But Louie wants to talk to Rabbi, but Josto says he's gone too. And this is where he tells him that it was Calamita that did it. And the guys behind Loy are saying that they can't just let them walk out of here. But Loy screams at him to get out. And um, well, Loy wants the body too, and they tell him there's no. We don't know where the body is because he took him away somewhere. Right. Right. And then this is where we go to that great cinematography. I was talking about the front of the old car, and then Josto in the back seat, happy with what he's done. You can tell he's just like pleased. He's doing a little sing-songy thing with his finger and smoking a cigarette. And Lloyd, he's playing with a toy car in the back seat. He, he's such a child. Child. He's a child. Yeah. And meanwhile, Loy is hearing all the conversations he's had with Satchel. Satchel saying no, no, and then him telling him that he can come home soon and that kind of thing. And then we see Zero in the bathroom and Loy thinking about strangling him with a jump rope, but that doesn't happen. And then Loy goes into the bedroom and looks at his wife, and then we see the outside of the house and we hear her screaming, and we know that... He's told her about Satchel. All right, Michelle, so we got to figure out here. we got to put our flag in the sand. What do you think about Satchel and Loy and Buell right at this point? Satchel and Loy and who? Satchel and Buell is the mom, right? Buell. Oh, okay. I didn't remember her name. Buell and Loy are the parents of Satchel. So what okay. do you think happened? What do you think is going to happen with them and Satchel? I don't think they're going to see Satchel again. And I don't think it plays out really well for for Loy or Buell at all, based on what we know in the previous season, which was in the future with Mike Milligan. That is what I think, too. So I, I, it prompted me to think about what does it mean to be dead? What is dead? What does dead mean? You can still be dead to somebody, but still be alive yourself. Like to Buell, Mama, Satchel is dead. She feels sadness over his death, like I'll never see my little Satchel again. Because she probably won't, even though he's alive. He could be alive and well. He could become Mike Milligan. 
and he, he if he's disappeared from the Cannon household, to her, he got murdered, and he's as dead as he, if he got hit by a truck. So dead is how you interpret it, no matter if you're really alive or dead or not. Yeah, I'm I'm more worried about Lloyd and her dying. And that's why Satchel doesn't go back home. I don't necessarily think that it's just going to be, and it could be, just that Rabbi keeps him and takes him away, and Satchel feels an allegiance and a love, maybe, for Rabbi, because Rabbi's been there when his own father sent him away. And um, so that could definitely be it. But for some reason, I just kind of got an inclination that it might be. And, you know, they've said it before. They've said it more than once that Satchel, well, Rabbi said it to him. That Satchel couldn't go home because they're all going to be dead. I know, but I'm trying to think of the deeper thoughts of what pe- what pe- what goes through people's thought process and what they think and what it means and what how real something is, even if it's not really true. If you think it's real, it's it's like Loy showing the wad of cash to the bum on the street, and for four seconds that bum was like, "Wow, I've got it made for the next three months. I've got enough money now to do whatever I want." I'm going to get a nice set of clothes and some women and some booze, and I'm going to be living it up. And then Lloyd takes it away one second. He, you know, he takes away the thought. The thought put that guy in a world that he never really had. He never was able to get it. But Lloyd made him think it was possible, then took it away. And it was all just thought. It was never real. And that's what kind of I think they are, where kind of I think they are with this thought about Satchel. It's like, they really think he's dead, and they may never know anything different. That's interesting, and that's a great point. And um, what did Lloyd say about the bum? He said, I robbed him. And so I guess it's the same thing, because it's like now they've been robbed of their son, even though he's still out Still there. there. Yeah. That's interesting. So then we see Lloyd's lying in bed hugging his wife, and we flash back to the screen where Lloyd's talking to Satchel in the park. That cute little conversation that they had. And Satchel tells Lloyd that Rabbi helps him with his lessons, and uh, he asks if Zero sleeps in his bed. Just these little things that you might think about. And then Lloyd tells him that you have to be really, what, sharp or smart where they're going and Satchel says Florida and then he says no to the top where we're going the smartest man lives yeah so then Lloyd, that's an implication that the that the less intelligent man doesn't make it doesn't survive and certainly we know that Loy is not if not the smartest guy in the show he's up up near the top yeah, I think Ebal, I, I mean, you know, Ebal, Dr. Senator, but yeah, but I mean, Dr. Senator didn't survive, and he was smart, but, and then Lloyd's being driven down the road, and he asks the driver to pull over, and this just adds insult to injury. There is a billboard for Diners Club credit card. The bank stole his freaking idea. They stole his idea. As a business person, Michelle, this might be the saddest part of this episode to me. <laughs> Seriously, they stole. My, they steal his idea, even about buying a nice dinner. It's a diner's club, and people pretending, you know, oh, we've got money to buy whatever we want. Not pretending, but all, all to that piccolo again. That piccolo theme came back strong on this. 
But he lost his idea. Card. Do you remember? What? Donner, Donner's Club was actually a card. Yeah, it was the first credit card. Yeah, okay. In, in Integrated or in, in, impl, implemented in 1950. It's that a true. It's a true. It's a true. That was the first credit card, and losing this idea, losing a great idea, because I don't know. We didn't really talk about what layaway means in this episode, but Loy and Doctor Senator had to put it on layaway because they had, you know, they got turned down. And they had other things come up, but they didn't punch it through, and somebody else stole the idea. That's. That's, That's not really layaway, though. I don't really know why they would call it that. Layaway is when you make payments on something. I know it's not layaway, it Michelle. I'm just saying it's they they laid it aside and didn't get oh I see what another you're bank to do it and or the, you know we didn't try forty banks. We tried one, got turned down. All right, let's go back to loan sharking. I know it's not the same as layaway. Well, I didn't know. Okay, then we go to Weff, and Weff is thinking back to himself lying with his head in his girlfriend's lap and her singing to him. And he just looks so peaceful, and it just kind of breaks my heart a little bit for Weff. The most He's romantic t- scenes in this show, Michelle, are when the girl sings to the guy, like Orietta and Josta. True. True, but yeah, but not Orietta, but okay. But he's staring no, at her Orietta. picture, and his suitcase is open in the background. And then we start, he starts to like pack up the Hummels one at a time. He takes out like a handkerchief and picks up one and wraps it up. And this is where I talked about the cool scene with the light streaming through the windows and the, um, like you said, like the residual of the person walking and fading out as the other person's moving or the same person's moving in the room somewhere else. And then he leaves the apartment with his suitcases in hand, and he gets out to his car, and he goes to open the trunk, and there's the cannons. They tell him to get in their car, and Wef says, you don't tell me to get in your car. I tell you to get in my car, and they say, okay. And then in the he's like, no, no, and then in the background, we hear the one little, two little, three little Indians, so stress, stress, stress. And then we see Wef in the gym place where Gatano is being held. When Zelmar and Swanee come walking in. And Swanee, man, she is always eating. She eats the whole time. Every time you see her, she is gnawing on something. And Wef's just like blown away. He's like, you do know you're wanted, right? And then he asks Swanee how old she is. And that was kind of neat. She's as old as the hills, the rivers, the tree, the trees. Yeah, there's something creepy about Swanee too. Coming up with that Eng- that Indian language philosophy, Perfectly. yeah. Which who knows where she grew up or how she knew it, but it wasn't like she remembered an old line that somebody once taught her. It's like she has that language in her, like she knows it, like it was her first language. Yeah. Yes. And I thought it was interesting too how they torment slash flirt with him. Like he looks a little nervous, and they're sitting like right practically in his lap. Well, they, yeah, and Zel- Zelmar sits beside him and like leans back on him. And then Lloyd comes in and has Weff cover his ears, and that's like this other like a childish thing. He's like treating him like a child. Cover your ears so I can't hear. So you can't hear that I'm giving Zelmar and Swanee tickets for the 10 o'clock train to Philly. And he does. 
So anyway. Yeah, so a couple things about the cover your ears that I took. First of all, if you tell somebody to cover your ears or if you put a blindfold on one of your hostages, you know they're safe. Because if you're going to kill them, you don't have to worry about what they hear or what they see. And it's another part of this childish little thing, cover your ears up. But I think Loy wants him to hear what he's telling the girls. Because I think, like we talked about in another episode, Weff has access to everybody and anybody. He's a cop. He's in both gangs. He's a double-crosser. He can pretty much go. He may be starting to eliminate some of these because of his because of you know what he's doing. But he's, he's accepted in a lot of different venues. And I think Lloyd wants him to hear this. So he goes, when he goes back to the Italians, he tells them what he's heard. Because it's not effective. It, covering your ears up isn't going to really work. And Lloyd's, Lloyd's not a simpleton. He doesn't think, oh, I, he covered his ears. There's no way he could know that they're going to go to Philadelphia. He wants them to know this. That's interesting because I did not put that together. But he thought, or maybe he's testing Lloyd to see if he would tell him. I don't know. But but anyway, the girls don't want to go. But Lloyd asked him if, if Zelmar loves her sister. And then Sawani says, it's been a sad parade. <laughs> she has the weirdest sayings. It's been a sad parade. They walk out, and this is where Weff tells him that he tries to get his kid. And Lloyd goes into, I always tell my kids to elevate, don't denigrate. And then he talks about how... You try to maintain a higher standard and people pull you down in the dirt. And if you get in the dirt with them, then you're as bad as they are. And then he tells Weff that they murdered his child. And Weff did not know. And then he talks about the eye for an eye type brother who's in the room with him. But he's yeah, not that's again, that's a tone. That's an atonement right. that Duffy described. Right, and that, that's what his people think he should do, but that his people are not responsible for this family. And Lloyd says that in America, the criminal doesn't rob you. And this goes back to all that again. It was such a great little speech he gave. The criminal doesn't rob you as much as they trick you into robbing yourself. Americans are dreamers, and dreamers you can fleece. So, Michelle, I think Loy is talking about himself here. Because I think credit cards are the future that we rob of ourselves. When we buy things on credit, you rob your own future money. And I think he, and he, I think Lloyd's a grifter. <laughs> He's the confidence man. He talks you into like, if you're a dreamer, you just want to dream you can afford that lobster. Well, here's a card where you can get it, even though you don't have that money in your pocket. But yeah, later on. Later on, you got to pay me, you know, 1.8 times what that lobster really cost. That's robbing your future by using credit today. I think he's yeah. talking about himself. I don't think he is. I think this is his shyst. I think it's his racket. And he's figured out how to get Americans to rob themselves by paying him more for every single thing they buy. Well, that's but what I that's just said. No, he, that's not him. You said him. You credit, said he's Yeah, if you that's what a credit card that's what a credit card is. If you're that's the, what I'm talking about. But you said Lloyd is saying this about himself. Yeah, like Loy wanted the to dreamer be the, that can be fleeced. No, Loy is the grifter. Loy is the one managing the credit card operation or he wanted to be. He's the one running the racket. 
And I, yeah. I can talk you into, because you're a dreamer, I'll talk you into buying that lobster dinner, even though you can't afford it, but then you're going to pay me a lot more later. I'm robbing you in the future. Right. I'm okay, letting well, you, I'm letting you run, uh, I'm letting you make your dreams run wild and you're robbing yourself of the, of your own future. For some reason, I thought you were saying that he was the dreamer that was being no, fleeced. he's the grifter. Right. Okay. I agree with that. And then he sits beside Weff and he tells him that Josto wants him to kill Gatano, but he's not going to do it. And Weff says, well, what are you going to do? And Lloyd says, no, what are we going to do? Yeah, he sends Weff on a mysterious mission. We don't know the specifics of it, but I guarantee you the cover your ears so you don't hear this part was meant to be paid closer attention because this is interesting. Right. He can hear through his ears being covered by his hands. Yeah, but do you think, I mean, he's not going to go have Swanee and uh, Zelmar killed, I don't think. He said, I'm trying to do the right thing. So you think he's going to have, like, he's setting them up? Why not just handle it there? That sounds like a lot of trouble. Well, I don't know that, yeah, I don't know the, I don't know the plan that he has, and I don't think anybody does, but... I think he's setting Weff up as this host, you know, because he has access to all these places. He's a message carrier, and he wants this little meeting to be shared with the Italians. So do you think Weff's going to come out of this okay? Probably not. First of all, I don't, I don't even really think the girls are going to end up in Philly. They don't want to go. You know, what's her name? Um, roulette. So- um, Zelmar and Swanee. Zelmar. Swanee does not want to go to Philly. She wants to stay here and have fun. Criminal fun. I don't think they're going to end up in Philadelphia and be like, okay, that was that for them. Now they're off the show. They're in Philly. Right. Being in nannies. To some, you know, what are they going to do in well, Philly? We can hope not. So then we go to Gatano. He's bent over. He's chained. He's bleeding. He's talking about all the people he killed. Okay. That's another thing. The way they had him there is like kneeling with his hands behind his back. And, you know, he wasn't even like sitting back on his on his feet. He was like kneeling. And I thought that was really weird. It was very subservient. And um, I couldn't decide here if he was asking for forgiveness, like if he was praying and recounting his sins or if he was just doing his mad talking about what a what a could great be, he could be doing like an aria prayer from Game of Thrones where that gives him calm in difficult situations like he just repeats the names of in his case he sounded like repeating the names of people he had murdered that's and what he it, did in talking about in how her he murdered case them. it was like it gave her comfort to think of the revenge she would get on people in the future Right. that were still alive that she would murder. But maybe it was just a prayer of sorts for Gaetano to give him some sort of comfort. Yeah, I felt like, I kind of feel, I was kind of leaning toward the fact that he was praying for forgiveness because I think he thought he was going to die. And he was praying for forgiveness for the stuff he had done and like maybe. admitting his sins, uh, confessing. But Lloyd comes in and pulls up a stool and tells him this thing is done. Josto gave him the stockyards and the trucking, equal partners, if I kill you. Lloyd pulls up the stool. we got to catch this too, Michelle. He pulls up the stool so he can sit at Gaetano's level. Right. For respect. He doesn't stand up and loom over. I mean, he gives him the, you know, the... 
uh, zero respect, you know, where, where he talked a little zero, he bent down and put his face right next to him. And he kind of does that with Gaetano, too. He's, he's, he's a criminal, but he plays by fair rules. Yeah, they all kind of have their own little rules. Like I was talking about with Calameda and, and his taking his hat off before he even opened the Bible. Pretty, pretty interesting. But Gatano here says, well, family's family. And Lloyd says, yeah, but they're, my family's, no one in my family's trying to kill me. And then Gatano's like, enough talking. You're going to kill me, kill me. Lloyd says, nope. And he tells his guys to let him go. And Gatano is literally like, what? He's like, what? And they walk out. And then outside, Lloyd says he wants Calamita dead. And they answer, he's, it's already done. He just isn't lying down yet. And then the other guy says, I sure hope you know what you're doing. And then we fade to black, and that's the end. All right, Michelle, so there's four left. Next is far away at the Nadir. Um, and it ends with Storia Americana. So kind of what I was thinking about this whole thing, the theme I love in this show is the story of America. So I'm hoping they tie it all up with that, and that's kind of what... You know, America's a crime story. America's a, America's a history of America's story of criminals and all that. I, I, I just love that part about this romantic notion of criminality that they're making in a part of this drama. Right. Right. People that can't do anything else otherwise can somehow scrabble and make, make success, even though it's criminal success. It's very, it's very entertaining, if not, you know not the right thing to do it's very entertaining to watch not very righteous but it is it's so interesting and um i just think fargo's done so far and i mean we're going into episode eight i just think they have so far just knocked it out of the park they'd have to really screw it up also episode 410 is entitled happy so I think we're going to visit from Mr. Big, wherever he's from, this happy dude is going to be a big part of the future for Loy, or whatever Loy was, if he's not alive still in 410. But this is, uh, you know, there's some big, big heavies coming in from New York or wherever happy is to bring this war up another couple notches. I think you're probably right. All right, Michelle, we'll see you next week on The Nadir. Okay, Mike, see you then.